welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was the Parade of Tin Soldiers. That's one of the influences of my guest today, the great Trevor Horn, responsible for some of the most successful and influential music in the last 50 years. For his new book, Adventures in Modern Recording from ABC to ZTT, he's chosen tracks that have been influential to him, which includes that one, as well as a range of tracks that are important that he's worked on. So this podcast interview is a fantastic insight into the wonderful world of Trevor Horn. So let's hear my chat with Trevor. Aha. Hi, Trevor. It's Jason here. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, it seems a, a great time to speak with you because this we're actually speaking on the uh, release day of your new book, Adventures in Modern Recording. You got it. I love the way that it weaves your life in music and certain pieces of music that either inspired you yeah. or you worked on. And at the very beginning, it references the Parade of the Tin Soldiers. And that's a piece of music that you heard on the gramophone. Yeah, we used to have a gramophone and we had a couple of records. There was there was the March of the Tin Soldiers was the first one. And the next one that I really liked was Audie Murphy heading for the last roundup. I didn't know what it meant at the time. I wouldn't listen to it now because when you get old, that's the last song you want to listen to. But uh, yeah, Tin Soldiers was the first one I really liked. That element where you describe your family background, the music that you listen to, and the role of your dad, who also played in dance bands, was yeah. uh, hugely influential for you? Yeah, well, I, to be honest, I don't know if I'd have taken up the double bass if it hadn't been for the fact that my father played it and it was there. I was pretty intrigued by music, but the idea of playing the bass, I didn't even know what basses played till he showed me. And then I got quite interested in it. I suppose it was uh, when people used to watch the telly, I would go into the back room and fiddle around with musical instruments, which is what I'm still doing now. <laughs> and as music evolved, when Dylan and the Beatles came in and, and you got into your teens, your tastes evolved yeah. along with the music scene that was going on around you? Well, everything sort of, you know, I'll never forget going to buy with the Beatles, probably the day after it came out. And the guy that was serving me across the desk of the record shop was one of the French horn players in the youth orchestra. And a lot of the horn players were quite sort of po-faced. And as I was buying it, I said to him, not your kind of thing, eh? And he said, you're kidding. I bought this yesterday. I got my copy yesterday. So the Beatles changed everything because everybody liked the Beatles, even the classical guys in the orchestra. And it's suddenly, you know, pop music. I mean, it's not that there weren't great sort of pop records before the Beatles, but the Beatles just upped the bar completely. That vocal harmony sound was so compelling, you know? The Beatles, alongside uh, George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, were one of the pioneers in terms of the evolution of sound and the studio as an instrument. Oh, yeah, very much so, yeah. They did all the same tricks that we do now, sped their voices up, did all kinds of strange edits. So we, we still do it, but in a different way. You wrote about that you deputised in the dance band and then it led you into your own bands and yeah. eventually you, you went full time. Yeah, I, they, back in the day, they used to call it turning pro. But, you know, I, I, I sort of turned pro when I was 18, but I went into a very old-fashioned music scene it certainly wasn't a rock band. You know, I was, I think I say it in the book that I was unusual in that I could sight read music for the bass guitar. I mean, I could, I, obviously, I wasn't uh, up to the standard of, you know, it took me a, a while, but nobody else could do it. So I could get away with being not that great. 
And bass parts suddenly changed, you know, in uh, when I was about 17. It went from being sort of pretty boring to being quite demanding suddenly, you know. People were getting used to the bass guitar and realizing what it could do. Uh, so I was kind of, but I, w- I was mainly earning a living from the fact that I could read for the bass guitar and I could sing a few songs. So I was playing with bands and I played in the Savoy Hotel in Blackpool for like five months. I was in the house band there. I had to cut down this part of the book because it just, when I started, I actually originally wrote pretty much everything that happened and it just went on for too long, <laughs> too many different bands. Yeah, and that late 60s and to the certainly the mid-70s at least was a fantastic apprenticeship in the music in all stages from clubs and around the country and whatever to yeah. to the studio as you started to venture more into that studio side of things. Yeah, well, I mean, all through the 70s, I had my living playing the bass guitar. You know, I, I was in the, in the resident band at Hammersmith Palais for a year and a half, and you got to play everything that was in the charts, you know? So I knew everything that was, you know, all the songs. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I had to play, what's it called, Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> I mean, that was such a popular tune. I, m- I remember having to play that one a lot. And another one that we used to play a lot was Everybody Dance yeah. by Sheik. And funny enough, years later, I met Bernard Edwards, uh, the bass player in Sheik, who was quite brilliant bass player. He's one of those very fast finger style bass players. I played with a pick. So I had to read his vamping at the end of Everybody Dance. I've never heard it. It's mental. Mm. So I had to put in a bit of time to sort of learn it. So I met him. I said to him, you're the bugger that played that bass guitar part. And I had to. And he said, oh, man, did you have to play that? And I was like, yeah. He said, well, you know, we were running out of time on the session and we didn't know what to, the end, what to do at the end. So Niall said, oh, Bernie, just vamp, man, vamp. And so I was just vamping. <laughs> So the 70s. One of the other songs that you couldn't miss out that's referenced in, in the book, Buggles and, and the song Video Killed the Radio Star. And that yeah. was just an incredible moment where it was kind of futuristic, but almost futuristic in a retro sci-fi way. Futuristic retro. <laughs> yes, it was it was a very odd record, really, looking back on it. Um I think but I think it certainly had the Goombay dance band factor. You know, it's like it had lots of gags in it, you know, like little oral, you know, like the oh, what, oh, and all those sort of bits, you know, that really worked for it. So it was it, it was unusual. And we tried, I mean, there isn't a single machine on it. It's all played by hand. But we, we were, you know, we were really trying consciously to sound like machines on it. It's a fantastic example of the role of a producer or being creative in the studio because, You've got Bruce's version, yeah. you've got the Buggles version, and mm. it's very clear in terms of the Buggles version that it was far more commercial and catchy and yeah. more interesting on the year. Well, Bruce's version was a group version because Bruce was trying to, he was going for being, you know, uh, a group. So he was going for that sort of indie sound. We were just going for, for you know, a hit. And, and, you know, when you come from nowhere... Your record's got to be attractive to attract attention amongst all of the others that come out every week. Video from the moment it went out on, you know, Ireland used to send out a cassette every month of their next month's releases. From the moment that cassette went out with Video Killed the Radio Star, the phone started ringing and it never stopped. One of the fascinating aspects is obviously everyone knows about Jeff's role 
on that uh, album, but the role of Hans, the now legendary Hans Zimmer. Not many people will know that. Well, Hans was only in the band for a brief period of time. And really, we had one keyboard player already, and Jeff was an exceptional keyboard player. Hans is a really good musician, uh, but he wasn't like, you know, Jeff was just a great keyboard player. Hans was great with programming stuff, the sounds, you know, sounds. He had a Prophet 5. Of course, Hans is great with people. He's a great guy to hang with, you know. After the period of, of the Buggles, you made that more conscious decision to basically step back from fronting and crafting music as an artist yourself in, in terms of the, the more production side. So was that just a conscious decision? Uh, yes, it was my late wife. You know, when Jeff left the Buggles and went to join Asia, so there was just me, you know, she said, I think, I think you should be, go back to being a producer because that's what you really are. You see, the thing is, I spent nearly, you know, when Video Killed the Radio Star happened, I'd spent nearly five years as a producer doing demos and various things for people. And, you know, video was, you know, I realized after a few years that it was going to be hard to get a hit act without having a hit already. Do you know what I mean? Uh, mm. Because there's too much competition. So I'd, I was going to have to sort of write my own and I didn't think I'd end up singing it. You know, that was... That, that was a surprise, but so it never been my first thing, you know. I was a really bass player, so, so my my late wife was right. She said, "I think as an artist, you'll always be second division," because I never had a great voice. And bass players, you know, apart from Sting, but I'm not Sting. Sting's got an incredible voice. He's a great writer. See, she said, I think you'd be better off being a producer because I think if you went back to being a producer, you could do really, really well. And so I listened to her and I thought she's right. And so I decided to concentrate on producing.
I wanted to ask you about. Yes, Tempest Puget. It must have been a, well, a strange well, I moment. I decided to be a producer after I'd been in Yes. Don't forget. Yeah. Yes came more or less straight after the Buggles. And Yes was like a whole, just one of those sideways things that you never think is going to happen and happened. Maybe one of your, your favourite bands growing up? Oh, yeah. In the 70s, I used to listen to Yes all the time. Uh, I loved Yes. Being a bass player, it was hard not to like Yes because the bass player was so good. And I liked the singer as well because, you know, everybody else was being soulful and all kinds of things. And John Anderson just had a totally different sound, you know. A mixed feeling sort of first time around when you were in Yes in that you were front in the group, but obviously it was a period of transition really good material but it conflicted with a certain band that wanted the sort of traditional lineup well no i, I don't think that was the why it didn't last i don't think, i think it didn't last because i wasn't a good enough singer i mean i could do it on the record but you know 22 nights into the tour and you're singing a man conceived a moment's answers to the dream you know like singing like really at the top of your range it could get pretty tough um I think that was kind of what finished that, you know, iteration of, of Yes, rather than anything else.
the the 80s was such a, a productive time for you where there was yeah. so many so much great material featured in the book and had huge success with Dollar. And then working with ABC, the track being Poison Arrow, was Jill your late wife? Yes. So she comes up repeatedly in the book as being very influential. And yeah, you talked about the fact that she mentioned ABC and you were watching Top of the Pops. Oh, yeah. No, she said, I found the next band for you to produce. And she made me watch uh, ABC doing the Tears Are Not Enough uh, on Top of the Pops. And I was like, well, it's not a bad song. She said, no, this group's perfect for you. And I was lucky because when I went to meet them, we got along pretty well, you know. I think they liked Handheld and Black and White, one of the records I'd done with Donna. And, uh, and they, they were ambitious, you know. They were, they were intelligent. They still are. <laughs> and that makes a lot of difference. In a way, it seems you persevered or had a view in terms of how the band should sound in the studio. And you mentioned uh, Sheik earlier, but that was something that you really wanted to bring into ABC? Well, I didn't. I, that's what ABC wanted. Right. I think I say it in the book, when we first did Poison Arrow, they played it and, and it sounded okay. And I said, is this what you want? Because, or do you want to get it better than this? And of course they said, well, how do we get it better than this? And I said, well, one way that I can think of is that I'll program exactly what you played on the drums into uh, a TR-808 and I'll play it. I'll program the bass part. At the time I had a TR-808 with trigger outs and I had a, a Roland sequencer that you could put lists of notes into. So I could program the drum part but then I had to use the cowbell on the TR-808 to trigger the bass synth. I mean, it took me all day to do, and I programmed the bass by ding, you know, all, all from the cowbell of the TR-808. And I don't know if you've ever programmed anything on a TR-808. You have to be very painstaking. I think it took me 10 hours wow. to do it. But by the end of it, I had a perfect techno rendition of the rhythm track for, for Poison Arrow. And then, and, then, uh, and then Dave Palmer played the drums on top of it, fitting exactly with the, the 808. And the bass player did the same. And suddenly we had a much more, much more in your face backing track. And that was just, just something I'd learned along the way, you know, how to do that. The role of Anne Dudley as well. Well, Anne Dudley was like having, you know, Anne Dudley, it still is. She's a terrific uh, piano player. Uh, I'd say, you know, I mean, I was playing with a, a trio in the nightclub in Wimbledon Tiffany's and, and you know, people used to dep the gig out occasionally. And one Friday night, this girl, blonde girl, showed up and she was like about... 10 times better than the, the, than the normal keyboard player. And I was like, whoa, this is terrific. She's great, you know, this is great. It like brought the band up from, it brought me to life because I was on automatic pilot with that band, you know, uh, which is earning a living. And I never forgot her from that night. Mm. And she's still like that, you know. Uh, if you've got Anne sitting, if you're playing with Anne sitting next to you, you know, you know it's going to be right.
Another fantastic example where you see a band relatively raw and work in the studio to produce a a magic single. It's uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Relax. Yeah. So you saw them first time around when they were on the tube? That's how I saw them, yeah. They were, they had some, they had some women chained up like this, you know, (laughs) and uh, the drummer, it was a weird version of Relax because it went into some kind of strange middle eight, but that's when I first saw them, but it didn't hit me. The song didn't hit me that first time. What hit me was the drummer. I thought the drummer's interesting, but the rest of it I couldn't make head to tail of, really. And then I heard them on the, I had a, a, a session that they did for John Peel where they played Relax. And when I heard it on the radio going home, I suddenly thought I could do some, really do something with this. It was the sound of Holly's voice and just that boof, boof, boof. So that's how I got into it. And that testing and experimenting in the studio and, again, persevering with new approaches to find something that really clicks really comes out in the book Good. in terms of just keeping going and finding the right sound for the song. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have picked the songs that probably had the most drama attached to them. 
you know, because you're going to write a book, it's no good going well. We went in, everything went fine, and it came out great. You know, <laughs> you, could, you want a bit of a story. And and the funny thing is that most of the really big ones, as the book shows, or the, the really good ones that you do, you quite often involve a lot of messing around and, well, read the book, you'll, you know what I mean, how, how crazy it is. I'm sure it's the same, make it, it's the same in any artistic endeavour.
mentioned ABC earlier, and that was a band where you used orchestration, and that certainly comes with the Pet Shop Boys left to my own devices, where you've got that brilliant melding of that more orchestration with the sim sound of the duo. Yeah, well, that was when they first sort of said, would you like to do a, a track with us for our new album in, where was it, 1987? They played me an early version of Left to My Own Devices. And I, I said to them, have you ever thought of using an orchestra? They hadn't. And I was like, well, why don't we give it a go, you know, um, see how it works for you. And uh, they were up for it. It was quite an unusual track and it kind of suited it, really. There's a moment in the book where you talk about how you used the orchestration. You had more of a fuller orchestration and then used elements for that track. Well, what happened was that was that the arranger, Richard, Richard Niles, had gone a bit mental at the end. And, and, you know, it was like one of those things where it was absolutely brilliant all the way through, all the way through till it hit the very end where it goes round and round. And he'd written some sort of really insane stuff, uh, which, you know, Chris really didn't like. So, you know, we recorded that stuff whatever it was and then and then and then I got him to because it was just going around on the same chords for like two minutes you know I got him to write footballs for the orchestra footballs for the chords just you know the footballs means semi-breeze and made, made it sort of gradually rise up as it went through you know that when you got 50 people waiting while you write the parts out that's no joke believe me and then what we did was we took that very straightforward stuff and then we just punched in. We took a few bits from the uh, crazy orchestration that he'd done and put those in here and there, you know, to make it work. That's what you do. It's very rare that I've ever done an orchestra and gone back, back into my own studio with it and not messed with it in some way.
difficult age Would I write a book or should I take to the stage But in the back of my head I heard distant feet Che Guevara and Debussy to a disco beat It's not a crime when you look the way you do The way I like to picture you When I get home, it's late at night I pour a drink and watch the fight Turn off the TV, look at a book Pick up the phone, fix some food Maybe I'll sit up all night and day Waiting for the minutes I hear you of artists that you worked with is so broad and another great example is Paul McCartney and you worked with him on Rough Ride and yeah. the dynamics between yourself as a producer or the producer more generally and the artist is a fascinating dynamic yeah well he was good fun to work with and he's really the kind of guy is you know if he was around the corner from where I am now and I was working on something and I needed some ideas I'd get him in like a shot you know great ideas <laughs> The stuff, you know, really great in the studio on anything, just about. And he was open to ideas. He was pretty open, yeah. You know, we, yeah. we, um, on Rough Ride, we had a beat that we'd grabbed from EU, Experience Unlimited, that fitted it. And, and then he played the drums on top of it. Yeah, he was, he was open to things. Yeah, he was good to work with. Did he have an idea of how he wanted it to sound? Not on Rough Ride. I think he was, uh, I think the next one that we did with a figure of eight, he had more of an idea. Right. I think on Rough Ride, he was just open. I mean, a lot of the time, this, this, this sort of concept that you have an idea of what it's going to sound like. I suppose quite often when I start things, I have an idea that I want it to be good mm. and exciting, but I don't know how I'm going to do it. So I don't really know till I start. And, you know, it's, it can, it, the thing is, you've got to have faith in the song. Sometimes you can work on some songs, you can work on them and you keep working on them because you know that they're good and that when you get them right, it's going to be worth it. Other songs, you know, you can't sort everything out, you know, you can't fix every song. I can't anyway. Maybe there's somebody there who can, but there's a few I couldn't fix, but there's no point in writing about them. Thank you. 
inside What will I do? Simple Minds Belfast Child is a great example where there's, was it your idea to introduce a, a folk element to their sound, which previously was quite uh, synthy? I thought it might be a, a good way of getting a, a really cool song, a folk tune, because 
I always felt there was an element of that in Jim's voice, as there was in you too, in a funny kind of way as well, you know. But uh, yeah, that was one idea that actually worked. But it worked because Jim did a good job of it, you know. He took the song that I mentioned, She Moved Through the Fair. So sadly I watched her move here and move there. It's a lovely old song, and he just adapted it. The thing is, you can have lots of ideas, somebody's going to do them. In that passage you describe, and that's one of the threads of the book, is that the material decides itself. You, you play to the yeah. strength of the yeah, song and yeah. the band. You don't just have some stupid idea of how you think it should be if it's not going to come out like that. I think, you know, like, hey, funky Belfast child, you know? I can't see it. When my love said to me, meet me down by the gallow tree for its sad news I bring about this old town and all that it's offering some say troubles abound someday soon they're gonna pull the old town down one day we'll return here when the Belfast child sings again Brothers, sisters, where are you now? As I look for you right through the crowd All my life here I've spent With my faith in God and church and the government Some say troubles One day we'll return here when the Belfast child sings again.
One day we'll return here when the Belfast child sings again. And I previously spoken to uh, John Altman. And he worked on Downtown Train, the orchestration side of that. And Oh, yeah, he did, yeah. You give your side of that incredible story of the idea of that song coming out, your involvement, and the recording process, which was seemed so tight, having to sort of adapt the song as you go. Yeah, well, Downtown Train, and John, yeah, John Altman did a great orchestration for that, based on an idea by George DeAngelis. And, uh, but the problem was I did it in the wrong key. So when I got to L.A., I had to take it up a minor third. And these are the day. I mean, taking things up a minor third is a lot easier now than it was then. And uh, and of course, I had this beautiful orchestra in the key of G, and I had to pitch them up to B flat. And it wasn't easy. And uh, when we first started doing it, a lot of it sounded bloody awful. And then, you know, w- what I had to do is a combination of the bits that I could pitch that worked, along with uh, Kevin, a guy called Kevin Savagar who is uh, uh, Rod's MD, replayed a lot of it on, a, you know, synths, on uh, string samples. Uh, and it was a sort of, so the orchestra was a kind of melge of what I could recover from the recording in G with other stuff on top of it, you know? Rod was very clear in the studio of what would work for him as an artist and, and you needed to respond to that. No, I mean, Rod... Rod Rod came in on a Friday night in England, did a guide vocal over a backing track that I'd done and with a Proteus module on the dining room table. It was pretty crap backing track. And I said to him, ignore the backing track. It's just to get your voice on. because I've only had a day's notice, you know. And and he sang it in G and he sounded great. And then he went back to America and I spent the following week uh, with, you know, four musicians and, then, you know, made the whole backing track in G and flew out, put the orchestra on it and everything, and then flew out to America with it. And the first time he heard it was on the Sunday, you know, a a week and a bit later, because it had to be done so quickly. And he loved it. I always remember, you know, he was in the other room and I gave them whatever it was, a dat of the rough mix of it. And he called me up on the the internal phone at A&M and he said, Fucking great backing track, man. It sounds like the fucking Titanic going down. <laughs> it's like, I love it. Great. I'll be in to sing it in five minutes. But, uh, yeah, that, that record was a bit of a trip because there was so much pressure on it, man, you know. Mm. And because it was sanctioned from England but was being paid for by the Americans, people got pretty, uh, they kept ringing me up. What's it sound like, you know? Well, it doesn't sound like anything yet, you know. <laughs> Records have a tendency to sound. The, the problem is, is if you play something that's not finished to people, it, it, mm. it's a bit like showing them the house. You've explained to them that there's no doors and the roof isn't done yet, but, you know, the first thing they say is, there's no roof, <laughs> there's no doors, you know. Yeah, Rod was good to work with. He's funny. He's very funny when he wants to be. Another yellow wind 
has punched a hole in the nighttime mist. I climb to the window and down to the street. I'm shining like a new dime. The downtown trains are full, full of all them Brooklyn girls. They try so hard to break out of their little worlds. You wave your hand and they scatter like crows. They have nothing that'll ever capture your heart. They're just thorns without the rose. Be careful of being in the dark. Oh, if I was the one you chose to be your only one, oh baby, can't you hear me now? Can't you hear me now? Will I see you tonight?
Uh, the final track that I wanted to ask you about is Bell and Sebastian, I'm a Cuckoo. And that's really interesting because people hear Bell and Sebastian and then they hear your name and they think, well, Trevor's going to do a Trevor Horn on Bell and Sebastian, but that wasn't the case at all. No, I just tried to do a really good job of it. They were lovely. They were lovely to work with because they wanted to play, like I'm a Cuckoo, they, they were playing it live, the seven of them. And I think I say in the book, they played it 22, 23 times. We had 22, 23 takes of it. They didn't want to fix anything. They wanted to try and get it really dead right. And uh, I got a lot of respect for that. You know, some of the, back in the early days, some of the rock bands used to do that as well, you know, before you could cheat, you know, really play it. Some, you know, we did the same thing with the backing track of Video Kill the Radio stuff. It was just piano, bass and drums, but we played it over and over and over again for like, 10 hours to try and get it to sound perfect. And Bell and Sebastian were good like that. Really interesting how you described Stuart's got a more of a gentle voice and that you've got the drummer who responds to that in a different way than what you'd see that with a rock band, for example. Yeah, well, the singers in rock bands have generally sing really high and they've got very loud voices because you have to with a rock band. I mean, ideally, someone like Robert Plant, you know, who has a beautiful low voice and a beautiful high voice. Uh, Bell and Sebastian's a different ball game altogether. The interesting thing is once you start playing the drums quietly rather than loud, they sound completely different. Mm. And if anything, they sound, it sounds more like the 60s, you know what I mean? And people these days pull up the drums very hard and that makes a certain sound, or if they play the drums at all these days, you know, because it's nearly always a machine. So the thing about them was that they, they, they worked out the whole arrangement of the song. And if a shaker came in on the chorus, one of them played the shaker and it came in on the chorus every single time. Do you know what I mean? Mm. It wasn't like we're going to overdub a shaker. It was there. So, that, so they were really good like that. I mean, they were my, I think I say in the book, they were my daughter's favourite band for a long time. And I thought their songwriting was amazing because uh, when I heard Stars of Track and Field, I loved that. Mm. The Boy with the Arab Strap, I think yeah. was the name of the album. So I kind of, kind of got into them and, I didn't contact them though. They, 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 I had a housekeeper out in LA and one of her sort of part-time jobs was every time Coachella came around, she would do all of the artists dressing rooms. And she told Bell and Sebastian that she worked for me and they were really curious. What's he like? People always wonder what you like. If they have some picture of God knows what. Um, <laughs> And uh, when I met them, I really liked them. I loved a collection of songs. I thought it was a great collection of songs because mm. I do like albums. Yeah. And albums are made up of really good album tracks. And really good album tracks are not failed singles. They're really good album tracks. There's a big difference. So I think I said it in the book that we made the whole album in their rehearsal room as well on a small Pro Tools system before we went into the studio proper. I'd love to have a copy of that. I wonder if they've got it. In fact, we may have even used the version of Piazza, something catcher, from that version of the record. I don't know. It's a long time ago. It's a great way to close. And it's just such a fascinating story in terms of your life, your roots, your influences, and the different approaches to get the sound that was right for the song and the band. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Trevor. It's been a real pleasure. Good. The Strange Brew podcast, that's where I'll tell people. <laughs> I was on the Strange Brew podcast. Good. That's the one. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Trevor. Bye.
glad to see you. I had a funny dream and you were wearing funny shoes. You were going to a dance. You were dressed like a punk, but you were too young to remember. I'm glad to see you. I'm outside the house, not thinking right today. I've got no energy. I'm glad that you are. Half of me, I counted on your company. You were staying with your friends tonight. I'm feeling sorry for myself. I keep taking everything to be outside. I'm happy for you, but now I know this hurt is poison. Too sharp to be bent. I'm sitting on my empty bed. I'm on my empty bed. Watch the Sunday gang in Harajuku. There's something wrong with me. I'm a cuckoo.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.